From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Even some fellow Democrats like Congressman Ro Khanna have called on 89-year-old Senator Dianne Feinstein to resign from Congress because of her absence since March, which is stalling President Biden's judicial nominees. I think many colleagues are hoping she will come to the conclusion her own. They have a lot of respect for her. They don't want to push her in a corner. Uh, but they're hoping that she will make this decision to have dignity uh, in ending a, a distinguished career. The same could be said of 95-year-old Judge Pauline Newman of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. A panel of her fellow judges is investigating allegations that Newman may be suffering from cognitive impairment that makes her unfit to serve on the bench. Judge Newman has been on the Federal Circuit since 1984 and is known as a champion of strong patent rights and the most prolific writer of dissents in the history of the court. But now there is a possibility that her legacy may be tarnished by a drawn-out judicial clash. Joining me is Arthur Hellman, a professor at the University of Pittsburgh Law School and an expert on judicial ethics. As I understand it, usually the federal judiciary resolves these kinds of issues privately. So are these proceedings unprecedented? It's certainly unprecedented to have a judicial counsel or a chief judge announce publicly that they've initiated proceedings that appear to be designed to push a judge into retirement. That has never happened before. As you mentioned, there have been problems with judges who appear no longer able to carry on their judicial duties. And yes, in the usual case, the chief judge and other judges work privately and behind the scenes And most of the time, they do succeed eventually in persuading the elderly or impaired judge to retire, to take senior status and stop hearing a full load of cases. So these health problems apparently started years ago. She had an undisclosed health event in the summer of 2021 and agreed to take on a reduced workload. Then she fainted at an oral argument. According to the complaint, Half the judges on the court, including the chief judge, spoke to her about these concerns. So was this just the next step? Yes, I think that with one exception, I think Chief Judge Moore has handled this by the book or by the act. She began by talking to other judges, thinking about what judges had said to her before she had done anything. She talked to judges, she talked with staff, she got a full picture of what appeared to be going on, and all this without any formal proceeding. 
And it's very telling that on the last page of that order, she explains that before filing the order and initiating this formal proceeding, she gave a copy of the draft order to Judge Newman and said, look, this is what I'm planning to do. I really hope I won't have to do it. I'll give you a week. Please think about that. And Judge Moore's hope, obviously, was that during that week, Judge Newman would agree to some kind of arrangement, including taking senior status, that would obviate the need to identify a complaint. But that did not happen. There were concerns brought to the chief judge about Newman's extensive delays in resolving cases and concerns that she may suffer from impairment of cognitive abilities. And it stated that she routinely makes statements in open court and during deliberative proceedings that demonstrate a clear lack of awareness over the issues in the cases. So is the concern that she's causing the court to look bad to the public? Oh, I think it's not simply to look bad, but she's interfering with the administration of justice in the court. I mean, the delays that Judge Moore chronicles there in detail are very long delays. I mean, a couple of them are, I think, a couple of years between the time that Judge Newman was given a case when it was ready for submission and the time she finally disposed of it. And then in other cases, Judge Moore reassigned cases because they'd been sitting in Judge Newman's chambers for for so long without resolution. And it's important to litigants and to the court to get cases disposed of in a reasonable amount of time. And that apparently is not happening or was not happening with many of the cases assigned to Judge Newman. So it's more than appearance. It really is interference with the effective business of the court. So explain what this special committee investigation is. Sure. We're talking first about a process that Congress authorized back in 1980 in the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act. And proceedings under that act are usually initiated by the filing of a complaint by somebody outside the court, a litigant or a lawyer. It can be anybody, actually. It doesn't have to be anybody connected with the case or the court. So, you know, 90-something percent of the proceedings are initiated in that way. But the statute also authorizes the chief judge to initiate a proceeding by identifying a complaint. And once the complaint is identified, the process is the same as it would be if the complaint had been filed by an outsider. So there's a single process for all complaints. Now, most of those complaints that are filed are dismissed because they're obviously frivolous or simply an attempt to relitigate a case. But if it's not a frivolous uh, complaint, if there's something to it, which is what we have here, the chief judge cannot go ahead and decide anything. The chief judge must appoint a special committee, which in this case consisted of the chief judge, who under the statute must be a member of the special committee, and two other circuit judges. So we have a three-person committee, including the chief judge, whose job is to investigate the allegations in the complaint. And that's what's going on now. They actually did quite a bit of work and came up with the quest, as it initially was, for Judge Newman to undergo some testing because of the concerns about her her mental fitness. 
And she said, no, she won't do that. And so that is setting up a major test of the act because it has never been authoritatively decided whether circuit councils have the authority to order a mental examination. Now, there was a case a few years ago where the Committee on Judicial Conduct and Disability of the Judicial Conference said that, yes, circuit councils have that authority, but the Judicial Conference Committee is not a court, and eventually that's going to have to be resolved by a a federal court in a proceeding starting in the district court. This move to have her undergo medical testing, she's refused to accept service of the order. So the committee has now expanded the scope of its investigation and is now looking into whether Newman has failed to cooperate in violation of the rules. So can they now go from that point, forgetting about her mental health and just look at her failure to cooperate in violation of the rules? Well, that's certainly a possibility, although I'm not sure that that would give them all that they eventually decide is necessary. In other words, an act of misconduct that is failure to cooperate would be a fairly limited act. I'm not sure what the sanctions, what the the discipline would be for that. But if they're really concerned, as apparently they are, that Judge Newman is mentally impaired and cannot perform her duties, then they want to do something that will get her off cases, because it is obviously not in the public interest to have an impaired judge deciding cases. So I'm not sure that this new allegation will be the dispositive one. There's one other thing I should, I should mention here while we're talking about process. The new rules, or relatively new rules, authorize a chief judge to ask the chief justice to transfer a proceeding under the Act. And one of the circumstances that justify a transfer is what I might call colloquially bad blood on the court or distrust among the judges. And there's certainly some evidence here that that is what is going on, that Judge Newman doesn't think she'll get a fair shake from her fellow judges who, as she sees it, have already decided that he's no longer fit to serve. So I do think this is an instance where transfer to another circuit could really be very helpful. And Judge Moore has not done that up to this point, but I, I think she could still do it. And I think that might make what I might call a peaceful resolution easier. I was looking into this and Ohio Federal Judge John Adams was admonished by the Sixth Circuit. Two judicial panels found he committed misconduct, found his actions to be outside the scope of normal, acceptable behavior, and ordered him to undergo a mental health exam in 2016. He fought back, and he's still on the bench. Well, yes, that was resolved with the dropping of most of the misconduct allegations. He actually brought suit in federal district court to challenge the the mental examination order. That challenge was was mooted when the council withdrew most of the allegations. So that was the case that gave rise to the opinion by the committee of the judicial conference saying that, yes, circuit councils do have that 
authority. That was resolved at the circuit conference level or the committee level, which tells us that if the order were to come before the Judicial Conference Committee, the order in Judge Newman's case, I assume the, the conference committee would reach the same result. But the Judicial Conference Committee is not a court, and we do not have a judicial resolution of that very important and I think very difficult issue. The system is set up to protect the independence of federal judges, and yet at the same time, the judicial system has a responsibility to assure that the judges who are deciding cases are competent to do so, and how that's resolved and what the statutory and constitutional answer is, eventually is going to have to come before some court for a a judicial answer. We also have the parallel instance at this time of Senator Dianne Feinstein, which she's missed dozens of Senate votes and refuses to step down. I think, you know, as America ages, we may see more and more of these problems. Should there be a mandatory retirement age for judges? Well, you know, if we were writing a constitution today, I'm quite sure we would not put in a provision for lifetime tenure for judges. I believe no state has copied that element of the federal constitution. But that is what is in the constitution. And I think almost all scholars, there's a minority view, but almost all scholars believe that under the constitution that we have, the only way to remove an Article Three judge like Judge Newman is through the process of impeachment by the House and trial and removal by the Senate. There's just no other constitutional process. What is not so clear is what judicial councils can do constitutionally. There have been several instances in the past where Judicial councils have suspended judges from hearing cases for some substantial periods of time, and a couple of those have been challenged in court. But in each instance, the suspensions ended by the time the court was ready to decide the case, and so the court never decided whether it is constitutional to do that or to what extent. I mean, I I think at some point, taking cases away from a judge on a permanent basis, would be tantamount to removing that judge from office. But temporary suspensions or suspensions limited to particular classes of cases or cases involving particular litigants, we've had some of those. Those are not clearly unconstitutional. But again, we we just don't have any authoritative decision on where that line has been drawn. And, And you're right that with an aging population, with all these medical miracles that enable people to live for far, far longer than was the case at the time of the framing, we're going to see more and more situations like this. And we can hope that judges are able to resolve them as they've resolved most of them in the past informally without the need for these formal and, in this instance, very public proceedings. It's an awful way for a distinguished judge as Judge Newman is, to end her career this way in a battle over whether she's mentally competent. So just to clarify, is the only way to remove her from the bench to have Congress go through the impeachment process? 
Well, there's one other avenue that I have not mentioned, and I'm not sure I've seen it mentioned in any of the articles either. There is a statute at Section 372C of the Judicial Code which authorizes the Judicial Council to certify a judge as disabled. And when that happens, the president can appoint a new judge to fill the position. Now, the statute is not clear on whether the disabled judge is effectively removed from office or prevented from hearing cases. That's the implication. And of course, if it is the functional equivalent of removal from office, then it does raise some serious constitutional questions. But the certification under 372B is one of the options the council has under the 1980 Act. So I have to think that that's one of the things that Judge Moore and her colleagues are considering as they move forward with this. Has that been done before? I'm aware of one 372B certification years ago where the judge did, it was actually before, just before the act was, uh, was passed, the judge did not contest. It was a very odd situation because 372A provides for a voluntary disability retirement. And the judge said, well, I'm not going to retire under 372A, but if you send a certificate to the president, I won't challenge it. So there was no challenge to the 372B and... As far as I'm aware, there haven't been others. If, if, there, if there have been others, they were not challenged. So there is no, again, as you say, there, there's no authoritative decision on how 372B can op- does operate or should operate or whether it is, in fact, consistent with the lifetime tenure of Article Three judges. I'm just stunned that someone at the age of 95 doesn't want to retire. No, I think most people would feel that way. You know, that's one of the reasons why we don't see this problem very often, because most people feel that way. Most people, after having performed a job for uh, 20 or 30 years or more, are very happy, especially federal judges who can continue to sit part-time and continue to get paid and continue to have many of the perquisites of office, most judges are happy to take senior status and provide the opportunity for another judge to sit on the court. But there's one comment that Judge Moore reported where she quotes uh, Judge, Judge Newman as saying, she refused to consider senior status, saying that she was the only person who cared about the patent system and innovation policy. So that seems to be what is driving Judge Newman. She she thinks that of all her colleagues on the federal circuit there, she's the only one who really, as she said, cares about the patent system. And that seems to be driving her to this recalcitrance and her unwillingness to do what, as you suggest, most judges would have done a long time ago, take senior status and enjoy some leisure along with the opportunity to decide cases. Thanks so much. I appreciate your being here. That's Professor Arthur Hellman of the University of Pittsburgh Law School. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The Supreme Court justices appeared to favor a broad view of when the government can deport legal immigrants convicted of certain crimes, including many who have been in the U.S. for decades. The question and argument centered on what types of crimes related to obstruction of justice count as an aggravated felony that can trigger deportation, and specifically whether there must be an active investigation or proceeding to qualify. Joining me is immigration law expert Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Tell us about these two defendants in this case. Well, there were two defendants with two separate crimes that had their cases consolidated before the court. The defendant from California, whose name was Cordero Garcia, was basically convicted of a sexual assault-based crime. And what they said was, In addition, he had a conviction of dissuading the witness from reporting the crime. And that was the conviction that the government was using to accomplish his deportation under the grounds of it being an obstruction of justice offense. And the other person, Jean-Francois Pugin, was someone who pled guilty in Virginia to being an accessory after the fact of obstruction of justice. And there they really aren't clear at all in the record as to what he was obstructing as an accessory after the fact, but it was basically trying to clean up somebody else's crime in that situation. And so from that standpoint, his was a little bit more sympathetic factually than the other one, Mr. Cordero, who had the situation with the sexual assault. So, Liam, just a question before we get to the main issue. Couldn't a judge order someone removed from the United States just on the basis of any crime that they have committed? I mean, does it have to be a specific crime? So here's the answer to that question. It's a two-part answer. Yes is the first part. You can deport someone pretty much over almost any crime, but... If a crime is known as an aggravated felony, then there's no relief from removal that you can get. There's relief from removal you can apply for depending on other crimes. You've been convicted of less serious crimes than what are known as aggravated felonies. Then you can apply for different kinds of relief. There's one called cancellation of removal. There's also you can apply for asylum instead of being banned from asylum where you'd have to actually prove that you were going to get tortured is the only way you could say that wouldn't necessarily be the case if you weren't an aggravated felon. So it actually has a lot of serious consequences there, and that is why the government wants to use that tool, because then it's an open and shut case and they can deport you, but it's obviously why the foreign nationals don't want to be called aggravated felons. So just tell us about this question of an offense relating to obstruction of justice. Sure. The Immigration and Nationality Act lays out a bunch of different criteria for what you can be deported for. And the worst criteria is that you're someone who's been convicted of an aggravated felony. And it actually lays out an alphabet 
soup full of aggravated felonies, A, B, C, D, E. It keeps giving crime after crime after crime after crime. And when you finally get to letter S, you get to this letter of the statute that says an offense relating to obstruction of justice. And so the question is, what does that mean? And Congress, they really do need to clean up this whole system of how deportation works, because what they did was, when they wrote these statutes, is they were trying to scoop up federal and state crimes generally. And so they didn't have time to actually write down in the statute, here are all the crimes we want to include in this basket. They just kind of gave these general descriptions that said, everybody will figure this out later. It's not for us to be figuring this out here. And so now the court is grappled with this question, what is an offense relating to obstruction of justice? And so what the court was actually asking in this case, in terms of what it was trying to resolve, is the simple question of, does a pending proceeding, either a judicial proceeding, with what one of the foreign nationals wanted, they said there has to actually be a pending judicial proceeding, or does at least a pending investigation have to be occurring in order for someone to be convicted of an offense related to obstruction of justice, or, as the government was saying, if you were even blocking an investigation from beginning, or if after the fact you were still obstructing, either of those two also counts as obstruction of justice, even though there wasn't a pending or ongoing investigation or judicial proceeding. So that was the argument in this case is, what do you have to do to be deported as an aggravated felon in this obstruction of justice category? You actually have to be obstructing something that exists currently, or could you be obstructing even an investigation from even starting in the first place, and that would be enough to deport you? Or could you be obstructing after the fact as an accessory after the fact, and that would also be enough to deport you as well? And federal appellate courts were split on this. Yes, correct. The Ninth Circuit ruled that, yes, you needed an ongoing proceeding in order to actually have this obstruction of justice. And the Fourth Circuit deferred to the Board of Immigration Appeals that said you don't need an ongoing investigation or proceeding in order to be convicted of an aggravated felony, that that would be still considered obstruction of justice if it was either trying to block a investigation from beginning or it was trying to conceal something after the fact. So during the oral arguments, were the justices split down ideological lines? No, they were all struggling with trying to figure out how to grapple with these issues. And I mean, this has been one area in general where you've seen a split between Justice Thomas and Justice Alito, where Justice Alito is very pro-government enforcement, and he usually sides with the government in these deportation cases. And Justice Thomas, and in this case, Justice Roberts, also were struggling. And Justice Thomas traditionally struggles with these issues of what does a conviction mean and how many collateral results can you get from a conviction where a person isn't really understanding the nature of everything that they're pleading guilty to at the time that they're pleading guilty to it. And so from that perspective, Justice Thomas has ruled 
traditionally in several cases in favor of foreign nationals in these contexts. But both Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas were struggling because they didn't like either argument that was being made. They did not like the argument from the foreign nationals because they could come up with many a different analogies of people obstructing investigations before they started that would be the kind of thing that Congress would want to stop. But they also didn't want this to get out of hand and say at the end of the day that you could basically call anything obstruction, even if there was no proof that an investigation was going to begin or should have began or anything else. And so from their perspective, the government, they thought, was way too broad. But they didn't think that the foreign nationals were providing a sufficient limiting principle to the fact that they didn't think it always had to be a pending or ongoing proceeding or investigation that is what triggered the obstruction of justice penalty. And then Justice Roberts had an issue with the fact that the way the statute is written says not obstruction of justice, but an offense relating to obstruction of justice. He thought that must mean that it's broader than just obstruction of justice. And so this is the issue that the justices were grappling with. To switch to other immigration matters, living in New York City, you know, there was a time when we were seeing Texas was busing up migrants. I haven't heard of that for a while. The reason you haven't heard about this is because the three-legged stool approach (laughs) that the Biden administration implemented at the beginning of the year, at least for now, is actually holding firm. And what do I mean by that? I mean that they wanted to do three things. Number one, say that anybody who was coming to the border had to come through the ports of entry. Number two, don't even come to the ports of entry if you don't have to. Apply for a legal pathway to enter the United States, which is this program where 30,000 Venezuelans, Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Asians can apply to be let in each month. And third, if you do try to come in between the border, we will just exclude you under Title 42 and tell you, make an appointment to come through the ports of entry. That program has actually led to far fewer people coming across the border in between the ports of entry, which were who the people were being bused to New York and to other places in the Northeast. Now, what's going to happen this summer if that parole program is taken away? And now that Title 42 is taken away... You know, we're going to be very interested to see what will happen in the upcoming months. And this is where the Biden administration is going to have a significant challenge moving forward. But at least for the first few months of the year, the Biden administration has a pretty strong argument that if they had just been allowed to implement the system the way they were trying to implement it, you wouldn't be seeing this need for busing or anything else because the numbers wouldn't be as substantial as they were previous to this three-pronged approach. And what's the status of Title 42? Well, Title 42 is gone now because of the situation with the COVID-19 national emergency being ended when Biden signed that bill ending the COVID-19 emergency, hence the Title 42 authority that's based on the COVID emergency. And so what the Biden administration is trying to transfer to now is this thing called an asylum ban which will say that if you entered the United States through any other country, which obviously everybody does, they enter through Mexico, you had to apply in any place where you could have applied prior to the United States. So the only people who will be exempt from this requirement will be Mexicans, who obviously can't apply for asylum in Mexico. 
but everyone else who enters through Mexico will have been required to have applied in Mexico before entering the United States, or alternatively, they could use one of the legal pathways unless that gets enjoined, or alternatively, they can do one of the orderly appointments for asylum at the ports of entry. But if you try to go in between, the idea is that you will be banned from doing that. And then the question will be, okay, that's going to go in litigation, and will that ban be allowed to survive? The Trump administration had tried a similar ban and looked like it was going to be successful ultimately, but we didn't get to the final resolution of that because the Trump administration ended before those cases could get to the Supreme Court. So this is one case at the Supreme Court, but there are some other immigration cases coming up. So tell us about those. Down the road, I think you're going to see three or four very interesting cases coming up down the road, which I think are the really important ones to monitor. The first one will be on this parole program that the Biden administration first did with Ukrainians, and even with Ukrainians hasn't been challenged, but is now being challenged now that it's been moved to Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, Cubans, and Haitians. Is that legal? Does the administration have the authority to parole people into the country based on specific criteria and in such significant numbers? So that's the first challenge, and that's going to be coming out of Texas, and I think that one will get to the Supreme Court. The second one will be on this asylum ban. Does the administration have the ability to ban people from applying for asylum if they enter in between the ports of entry? And then third, you're likely to see an interesting challenge if Florida passes the type of laws which will basically be challenged under the old Arizona Supreme Court case in 2012 about states punishing employers for hiring undocumented people and for punishing everyday citizens for helping people without status. Those kind of things will retest Arizona, and the court has changed since the Arizona court of 2012. And so the question is, will the decision in Arizona in 2012 actually stand, or will this new Supreme Court say, you know what, states actually can supplement and add to immigration law enforcement? And so I think those are the three interesting cases to watch moving forward. That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. This is Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.